0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. Uh, There's been some brilliant questions on my reflections on the relationship between cabinet ministers and the civil service, the imprecise nature, in my view, of the definition bullying. Great questions from uh members of the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. There've also been fantastic insights, I think, onto uh Keir Starmer and quite a few other topics too. So partly today it's a chance to uh fit in some uh some of your questions. I have done an interview which we normally put out at the end of the week, but it's embargoed because it's connected to a book that hasn't been published. So this is a chance for us to get together again and make sense of it all. Um I'm going to reflect a bit on, I think, the wider implications of the – I don't know if any of you have read the serialisation of Anthony Seldon's book on Boris Johnson. Um, But the book's out uh, soon, but they've been serialising it in the Times. Um, And – you kind of, it really got me thinking. Anyway, and I just want to reflect on that briefly as well as your brilliant points. Before all of that, just a reminder for those of you who subscribe to uh, the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics, and thank you for doing so, we are all getting together as uh, our bonus uh, in our time together uh, next Wednesday, and you'll be sent a link on the Patreon uh, version of this podcast, to tune in. I think it's at 7 o'clock next uh, Wednesday, where we can get together. It'll be on video and, yeah, uh, uh, the first time we've done that via Patreon. And um, so we can have a wider discussion uh, in our time together that evening. So do subscribe if you want to join in. And uh, what else? Yeah, King's Place, uh, the last live show in London before the Edinburgh Festival in August. And I've got an idea for a theme, but I'm not going to articulate it yet because who knows where we'll be. It's on Monday, May the 15th, and a lot's going to be happening between now and then, which might change my thoughts, but I might tell you early next week what um, I hope will be a theme as we gather together live there. I'm on this never-ending tour and thanks to all those who came to the show in Brighton or I should say Hove, the Old Market Theatre in Hove. um, Yeah, we delved deep that night. The questions were brilliant. Uh, Better, I concluded, than the questions in Cambridge a few days earlier. No, 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 I'm joking. Anyway, uh, thank you all for coming and do roll up on Monday the May 15th, the last one in London for quite some time. Now, this uh, book by Anthony Seldon, as probably a lot of you know, Seldon, uh, chronicles each prime minister has done for a long time he has the knack I know him quite well of um, securing dreamlike access to uh, wh- whoever is prime minister at the time and therefore when he puts the books out you know they are reliable and authoritative he doesn't exaggerate um, and they are well sourced Um And this one on Johnson, they're usually fairly sympathetic to prime ministers because Seldon understands the dilemmas they face. Um, But on the basis of the serialisation, he's pretty scathing about the misrule of uh, Johnson. And to give three examples of the scale of the misrule, uh, the book chronicles the chaos of Johnson's response to the pandemic its fundamental ideological confusion that there he was a libertarian not wanting to impose rules reluctantly doing so uh, but in a way that was confused advisors didn't quite know what was going on or what should be going on or what they should be saying and this was in that early phase which um It now seems like ancient history, but remains, uh, if you look back and think for a moment, horrendous. When uh, Britain had the fortune of that warning from the rest of Europe that COVID was coming, it went to Italy first and Spain and all these places. Britain, it it kind of arrived a bit later, and yet it was Liberty Hall uh, when the uh, COVID was... Rampant across Europe and heading towards the UK, it was the period, of course, when uh, race meetings still went ahead. People were told to go out to pubs. Football matches were uh, held. Rock concerts, and this was when it was spreading. and And, and Johnson did nothing. Um, and when he did act, it was with a kind of ideological bewilderment. And in a way, part of that led to Partygate because um, he didn't half believe in the rules that he was setting and anyway didn't believe that he should follow rules. Um, Then there's the social care policy announced on the steps of Number 10, that sort of totemic moment when a prime minister speaks for the first time outside Number 10. In July 2019, he said he had a plan for social care. He did not. And the subsequent attempts to get one were as chaotic as the pandemic and as disgraceful because hopes would have been raised callously um, that uh, finally some kind of intervention had been planned to uh, deal with this hugely complex issue. We've got an email on it later on in this podcast there was no plan in the end they scrabbled something together two years later some money called the social care levy but in true chaotic style it wasn't spent on social care Uh, it was going to be spent on the NHS then the levy was dropped anyway there had been no plans for recruitment standards and all the other essences of a plan for social care and although lessons were going to be learnt after the pandemic When the divide between the NHS and social care was so chaotically laid bare, uh, nothing was done. And indeed, the social care levy, well, it wasn't dropped by Johnson, but it was dropped by uh, Truss and dropped by Sunak. And then there was the relationship between Johnson and Sunak. Johnson announcing things without working out how they would be paid for. And then just forgetting that the announcement was really made. Um, Sunak in despair, trying to work out how to pay for it, not sure whether he needed to because uh, Johnson's interests would go elsewhere. Chaos. And then the relationship between Cummings, Johnson's wife, where did the power lie, should the power lie in either quarter, Uh, etc., etc., now I know what you're thinking, and it is what I was thinking when I read the extracts, and that is we knew all this at the time. Although to read it uh, authoritatively, sourced as I say, seldom wouldn't make things up; they would be based on uh, extensive source material. Um, you kind of sit there, think, "Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, that, oh yeah." Now you're shocked, but you're re-shocked because we all knew it at the time. The horrors were happening in front of us. And although in some ways Johnson is an act, a kind of pantomime act, he couldn't disguise, and in some senses his act reinforced, the sense of bewildered, chaos, misrule, inattention to detail. Don't even get me on Brexit, where in the end... The absurd Lord Frosty Frost, dangerously absurd, almost had a free hand. I mean, Johnson wasn't following the details. We could go on. But because we all knew it at the time, I think this does raise interesting uh, questions. There's one for the Tory party, which is um, uh, one for them to resolve. In a way, uh, Johnson, uh, with his recognition, that public spending can make a difference, could have been the Tory leader that finally dragged that party away from its obsession with Thatcherism, which it's returned to now under Rishi Sunak. Um, Part of Johnson, in a sort of shallow, confused way, was a one-nation Tory That could see the benefits of investing in public transport or um, uh, housing or whatever. Um, Call me a Roosevelt. I'm a Roosevelt. Um, But then he never worked out how he was going to get the money or clear it with the Treasury, which is always a battle. Um, But there he was, somebody who might, if he had been substantial, Modernized the Tory party instead of leaving it in uh, the chaos that um well <laughs> I was going to say that truss inherited very generous interpretation of the truss era. Do you remember her she was she was kind of around for four weeks um, but so that 's an interesting political question. If he had been serious, perhaps would the Tory party have if he won an election on the basis of being serious? Uh, could he have dragged it uh, towards a modern one-nation party? Um, And it's an important question because Conservatives in England win most general elections. Um, And at some point, uh, it will have to change. It cannot carry on being this very right-wing Thatcherite party. Um, also playing populist tunes about the culture wars, wokery, boats, and all the rest of it. Um, It it will have to grow up. Maybe it won't have to because England will just carry on voting for it. Um, But Johnson, half... No, that's too generous. A tenth of his instincts were towards a new Tory party. But, of course, it never got there uh, because it was all... Shallow, and it was all about him and the games he wanted to play, um, of which social care I think is the most shocking example. Here was an example of one nation Toryism uh, in theory uh, it, it would perhaps takes a Tory party to deal with social care because a labor uh, is now too scared to talk about spending on any level or putting up taxes, uh, as it was uh, in the new Labour era too. So maybe it will take a Tory party to sort it out. But uh, And Johnson, a tenth of him realised that, but of course the rest of him, too chaotic and inattentive uh, to get near towards a solution. But the other point, I think, is more about what that tells us about the constraints when a party elects someone wholly unsuited for leadership, what does it do? And the answer in this case was nothing. Uh, The Tory newspapers, hugely influential on the BBC, uh, largely painted Johnson as a heroic figure. They knew the shortcomings and ignored them and uh, tried to convince their readers that they were in the presence of a prime ministerial Titan. Uh, The cabinet did nothing, even though there was considerable discontent. We now know the devotees. We knew them at the time, actually. You know, Nadine Doris, who was made culture secretary and all all her ilk. Um, But what was going on was so irresponsible and reckless at a time of national emergency unseen since the Second World War, with the pandemic, Brexit, all these things whirling around at the same time. They should have challenged him. Uh, The cabinet should have been strong enough, or some members of that cabinet, to challenge the chaos. And they didn't, until in the end they had no choice but to move together to get rid of him uh, in July of last year. Uh, It should have happened much quicker. I know, in a way, it is remarkably speedy. There he was, winning a landslide in December 2019 and removed from power by the summer of 2022. But what went on between then was so shocking. Uh, it should at least have been challenged within Cabinet meetings, but nothing, no scrutiny of the Brexit detail uh, deal, no scrutiny of his claims to have a social care plan, Uh, No scrutiny when that plan emerged, except for Liz Truss saying uh, we shouldn't put up national insurance or whatever it was. We should just borrow more, an early indication of where she was going. Um, But no critical scrutiny and not really in the parliamentary party until that final phase triggered by Partygate when Tory MPs began to question quite who they had elected at such an important time. Um, The BBC did very little, terrified of uh, the Johnson regime, uh, aware that the director general was seeking to appease that regime, aware that they had a chairman who was friends with Johnson. Um, All these things kind of weigh on the minds of uh, editors wondering where the zeitgeist is within that shapeless and yet multi-layered organisation. <clears throat> and so i think the question really is um could he have been stopped from causing the chaos that um engulfed his leadership from day 1 actually uh before the pandemic um with brexit and other and other things um anyway it's interesting. I hope to interview Anthony Selden about it um, for the podcast, um, but um, there's a few thoughts from me. But now over to all of you on a glorious range of themes. Um, I've got huge numbers on my thoughts on the uh, imprecise nature of the term bullying. What does it mean? It joins Others, for me, in this era of imprecision, reform, modernisation, bullying, what does it actually mean? I've got a very long email from our Brussels co- correspondent, uh, Caroline Morgan, uh, who's based a lot of the time in Brussels, some of the time in London. And I said to her, it it came, I'd recorded the the podcast already. I said, you'll be disappointed with what I've said. Um, But I said, you know, I would feature uh, two of the themes from her email, because the first is on Keir Starmer. So I thought we'd begin with that. By the way, Keir Starmer has begun, uh, has given a long interview uh, to The Economist, where he actually uses the term Starmerism and seeks to define it. And The Economist has made a transcript of that interview available. And what I might do next week, if it's okay with all of you, is to do a sort of forensic look at those answers and what they tell us. Uh, But Caroline says this about Starbuck. I've always been a big fan, going way back to when he was a lawyer in practice, even before his QC and Director of Public Prosecution days. He took a lot of pro bono cases, such as the McLibel case. Yeah, it's. I I'm, sometimes wonder he should make more of this. It's, it's a real sign of character when uh, lawyers capable of earning an absolute ton of money. I'm sure he earned uh, decent wages. Don't you know? I'm not saying he he's, he he suffered poverty, uh, but to do these pro bono cases is, I think, a sign of uh, of decency. Um, anyway, Caroline goes on to say back in 2003 a friend sent me a double page spread from the observer about four young lawyers to watch called to the bar with a burning desire for justice i kept it as i wanted to see how the four turned out yeah and caroline's emailed a photo of the uh article i yeah i didn't know about this i'm surprised it hasn't been picked out before maybe you're the only one who knows it exists Karen, because you kept it um it includes a photo of a very youthful Starmer, plus lots of nice things about what a great campaigning lawyer he was, or as Sunak would call him, a lefty lawyer. Yeah, you see Sunak, yes, sir, softy, you lefty lawyer. That's my impression of uh, Sunak. Anyway, um, yeah, but it's impressive. I agree, Karen. This is all impressive stuff. Uh, instead of going to the lawyer's equivalent of Goldman Sachs and earning a fortune, as Sunak did on graduation, Starmer chose to put all his legal ability, talent and promise into defending the poorest and weakest in society, the underdogs, those who didn't have a voice. If that's what's being called a lefty lawyer is all about, let's have a few more of them and a few of the Goldman Sachs types. Karen, I, th- I think you should go and advise him. Because he or those around him should be saying more of this. Go on the offensive about, I know they do about his time as DPP, you know, I locked up, boom, 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 you know, tough, tough, tough. But some of this, you know, maybe they think the Red Wall would just think it's soft. So softy. Anyway, back to Karen. Of course, Starmer's given me cause to worry. As an EU official and keen rejoiner, his position on Europe worries me. I wish he hadn't so categorically ruled out rejoining the Single Market and Customs Union, unnecessarily boxing himself in. Of course, I wish he'd be more equivocal. Of course, I wish he hadn't put out the attack ad on Sunak. But here's the thing. Almost whatever Starmer does, I trust him. I believe that he has a plan. I believe that when he does things I disagree with or don't understand, I trust that he knows what he's doing. Well, there we go. Um, big endorsement for Starmer there. Um, and, well, as I say, you know, there's there are many ways of exploring his approach to leadership. We've done some in the podcast. Um, and another is just to look at what he's saying. Very Forensically, and say that's what I might try and do with this interview in The Economist. So, if you want to prepare in the cooperative for next week, uh, do try and read the transcript of his interview in The Economist. Uh, more of Caroline to come. She gives her verdict on uh, the civil service ministers' bullying. Um, but before that, I thought we'd open with a general observation about the tone of politics from Sue Cowan Jensen. Uh, who's a psychotherapist and she says it's clear to me the number of people suffering mental health issues has risen in recent years psychotherapists have never been busier uh, and the nhs never less impressive in its mental health provision some recent research in america has shown that small acts of kindness are very helpful in raising mood. It strikes me that the tone of our political discourse is so unkind. Seeing what's happening in Sudan is deeply upsetting. Then you hear the tone of Suella Braverman. No one says you can take in everyone who comes to the UK, but express some regret, some kindness. The demonising is disturbing to us all. Um, Yeah, and uh, we have a bit of an analysis from Sue about Braverman and others. Uh, As someone who was raised Jewish, I'm well acquainted with the concept of the self-hating Jew. I've yet to read about this syndrome for other races. Is it a coincidence that our most right-wing Home Secretaries recently are children of immigrants? I don't think so. The contempt that's shown to people attempting to come to the UK is revealing. And Sue adds, I hope to come to King's Place on May the 15th. Oh, well, thank you, Sue. See you there. Uh, We'll be delving deep then as well. But I think that is interesting. And I I, I agree with you. You know more um, as a therapist as well about this. But I don't think it's a coincidence that this um, kind of right-wing disdain almost um, has, as you say, come from two Home Secretaries, especially the current one, uh, who are children of immigrants themselves. It's weird, weird, weird. So that's about the general tone of uh, politics. Now back to Caroline Morgan. And um, see, my view, for those who missed it, you can listen back, um, is that one of my concerns about the dynamic in that Raab story was it implied ministers being almighty, and uh, senior uh, civil servants uh, uh, kind of at their beckoning call when it is ministers who often are fleeting in a department. Uh, They're gone quite often within a year. Um, They feel insecure because they could be kicked out in a reshuffle. They could lose their seats, etc. And so... That was part of my concern about the framing of this uh, story. Anyway, over uh, do listen back to that one if you haven't already. Caroline Morgan, our Brussels correspondent. She was so busy writing to me, I, I worry about Brussels, Caroline. But anyway, she did it on a Sunday, I think. Uh, Civil servants, and especially the ones assigned to ministers' offices, are among the best and brightest people in the country. They have to pass a very difficult exam to be admitted to the civil service. They work hard in public service with very little chance of recognition or reward. They have to adapt to all sorts of different ministers of varying ability, of different temperament and different agendas. Yet civil servants just have to deliver. As an EU civil servant, I've worked alongside numerous UK officials. Pre-Brexit teeth Nash. There used to be a secondment scheme whereby a few of them came to work in Brussels. Yeah, pre-Brexit. Oh, those days. Anyway, civil servants or seconded national experts, as they were known in the Brussels parlance from the UK, were really highly regarded at the Commission. So, yeah, she worries about the... Uh, framing of the story where basically they're useless and therefore ministers have to be assertive to get them to do anything i agree with you that's that is uh ridiculous and doesn't anyway justify raab's behavior um so um yeah uh, alex bell writing from switzerland makes a Uh, similar point it's interesting to reflect that civil servants like most of us in business will go through performance reviews and ratings and only rise to the top if they are deemed to be super competent it will probably take years ministers on the other hand are parachuted in at the top with little or no qualifications or experience and perhaps no proven managerial aptitude added to which before they can even know anything about the job they're supposed to be doing at the very top they're moved into another job they know nothing about is it any wonder that the uk is so pitifully governed uh, you wouldn't see businesses run like that etc alex adds do you have the tab for the theme tune yeah the theme tune for the podcast a lot of people ask this alex um I got someone at the BBC to fix it up at the beginning. I paid for it. and to pay for this. It cost me a fortune every time you listen to it. Um, And I haven't. I'll try and find out where I got it from uh, by asking the guy from the BBC. But it's quite some time ago now, Alex. We've been rocking and rolling in the podcast for quite a bit. But I'll do some research. To your wider point, uh, there's no doubt at all the uh, standards at the top have to be very high. In the civil service. Um, But, you know, one of the things I think Cameron got right, he didn't get much right, was allowing cabinet ministers to remain in post for quite some time. So, for example, Theresa May, five years at the Home Office. Now, then you do become quite powerful, and some of them can be effective in bringing about change. One of the ironies about Raab is he wasn't, he leaves nothing behind in his various jobs. Um, uh, so, but yeah, I mean, so, so that's the kind of point I was making about the dynamics. Most ministers aren't very powerful. Uh, most of them are very insecure and quite a few have good cause to feel insecure, but that's not always the case, of course. Uh, Gillian Charlesworth says, uh, my point is that bullying isn't the issue here, but has become a proxy Uh, For the real issues, this government came to power based on completely unrealistic foundations and is populated to a large extent by incompetents and extremists. This dangerous combination was always going to lead to intractable clashes with officials, who surely must feel a responsibility to the country to try to prevent the worst ideas ever seeing the light of day." Uh, brackets wave machines in the channel, breaking international law, etc. The bullying allegations ended up being a route for civil servants to deal with the situation, um, but because the real issues of ineptitude and unfeasible policy are not being acknowledged. And uh, Gillian says, Thanks for a great evening in Brighton. Oh, yeah, I should have come for a drink afterwards, Gillian. There are quite a few in that nice bar. Anyway, uh, yeah. Uh, that is a good point, I think. Uh, but you see, and by the way, you know, I hear so much still. You know, or oh, Keir Starmer can't, can't do anything because the Labour manifesto in '29 was so ridiculous that you you cut to show that you've changed. You can't go near any of it. But look at that Tory manifesto in '29. Talk about cakeism. Um, you know, promises of this, 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 and this, but no tax rises. Um, And the civil service then have to implement the impossible. Uh, However, Gillian, I have to say this. They are the elected government. And therefore, you do have to try and implement what they want. Um, And I know the civil service does. Um, But anyway, I I, I take your point about bullying being a sort of, uh, almost like a, Di- not a diversion, but a, a different means of dealing with it. I would say the term remains imprecise now, Venetia Kane, one of our regular correspondents, she's on holiday uh, from a pleasantly warm Lesbos, the Greek island. Uh, while being politically Greek is geographically Turkish. What a good time to be there. as, as I record this, it's still freezing in England. Um, it's starting to drive me crazy. When does this bloody country warm up? But anyway, we've taken back control, so it doesn't matter. Uh, Anyway, Venetia writes, surely the definition of bullying and whether Raab did should be irrelevant. It's unfortunate that the word appears in the ministerial code of behaviour. It's sloppy thinking by the author. The key is that any boss should treat their subordinates with respect for itself and also in order to get the best out of them. And clearly Raab didn't do either. Looking forward to the Zoom call next week when I'll be home. Well, I hope it's warmed up here, Venetia, for the Zoom call uh, on Patreon. See you there. And um, in terms of your uh, wider point, yeah, you see, I, I didn't make the claim that Rob was a model of good behaviour. He clearly isn't. Um, but Sunak had cause to sack him or not appoint him in the first place on other grounds. Um, uh, Steve Petrie points out the political dimension. Um Focusing on quasi-HR processes of the kind set up by Sunak obscures the essential political nature of the decisions involved. Rab established a reputation as a toxic leader at a very early stage in his career, and relationships between Raab and officials broke down in three successive departments. Sunak knew Raab well enough that he should have recognised this, but other factors like party management and personal loyalty seemingly took priority. Yeah, that's absolutely a key to understanding this and understanding Sunak, in a way, and understanding Sunak's position. Rob was one of the few in that uh, mad leadership contest last summer who stayed loyal to Sunak. Do you remember, quite a few suddenly defected to trust when it was clear she was going to win in a pathetic, uh, desperate attempt to retain a post in a cabinet. And it really rebounded on that lot when she went. Um, they're now on the back benches. Um, But Raab stayed loyal to Sunak, and that was part of his calculation, Sunak, uh, because he didn't experience much loyalty in the summer. So it it, it does have a huge uh, political dimension. Alison Key says, I don't care if Raab is technically a bully or not. He is unfit for a management position because his behaviour compromises the health and safety of staff. Yeah uh Alison you may well be right uh but this term bullying is becoming ubiquitous and that uh concerns me but you I mean no I, 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 a few are saying Rob was this mighty well-behaved minister I don't think he was uh Henry Midgley uh kind of is very strongly opposed to what I was saying. You represented politicians as powerless, transferred between offices every 18 months, and civil servants as powerful, permanent officials who really preside uh, uh, a la Sir Humphrey. Uh, I think though uh, both of these characterizations are wrong. Firstly, civil servants too often move jobs some uh, every fifteen months or so. Permanent secretaries are on a five year contract and, as a recent experience has shown aren 't immune to being sacked. Quite a few have been sacked. They too often move departments and fields within departments, sometimes as frequently as politicians and this happens by the way with non partisan staff in Parliament. Uh, Henry uh, tells me he worked in uh, Parliament. Um, uh, second, he says that uh, I wanted to make it, uh, to emphasise how powerless civil servants and people in Parliament can be when dealing with politicians. When I worked in the Commons, the entire culture was based upon serving the MPs you worked for. Yeah, uh, and you are right about that, Henry. I know special advisers. Uh, work around the clock at the behest of MPs and uh, so on. Um, The dynamic, it's interesting what you say, that civil servants get moved around as much as ministers. Uh, Not quite as much, I suspect, Henry, although maybe you can point to the figures that show that that's the case. I'm just struck, and it's a crazy way to run this country, say, with the exception of Cameron and the coalition, when reshuffles were complicated because Lib Dems were involved and all the rest of it. Um, uh, you know, with the exception of that, uh, it is crazy the amount of time that ministers have. And even those that have a long time worry that they won't have a long time. And yet they are treated as these mighty, omnipotent, powerful figures. Um so there we go. Just one more reference to um, uh, that podcast last week. I mentioned uh, Raab's seat and that he could well lose the seat if he were to stand. I don't think he will stand. And I said that um, uh, it's susceptible to a Labour swing. Uh, and of course, someone rightly, some of you rightly pointed out, it would be in that seat, a Lib Dem swing. I was kind of doing the broader sweep that if there's a swing that gets the Tories out of power, uh, Rob loses his seat. But I reckon he will stand down Anyway, uh, now, uh, some other interesting things happened which merit a whole podcast in recent days. Did you see the Biden uh, broadcast where he announced he was going to contest the next presidential election, stand for a second term? Uh, Because he seized a word that we're going to explore a lot in podcasts and have done already. And some of you noticed it. Steve Ryan said... Uh uh interesting to hear your latest podcast and talking about how the Conservatives own the concept of freedom, that word. Joe Biden's latest video aims to take it back. The theme of Biden in his declaration for a second term was freedom. And Philip Gilfus, who is from America, says, It's true that even in America I say as one now living here in the UK, freedom has been usually a word for conservatives. Freedom from big government, freedom to be left alone, freedom for local communities to make their own choices on education, social issues. But in the Trump era, with democratic values under attack, both by authoritarian tendencies and losing rights like abortion access and others due to a conservative US Supreme Court, freedom is now being used by the Democrats. Yeah, uh, I I noticed that with Biden. Um, anyway, Philip says I thought it an interesting use of freedom and potentially a preview of how Labour could use it. Uh, yeah, I I'm amazed Labour haven't made more made more use of this term freedom. Uh, Attlee did. He was quite smart Atley in presenting a case contrary to caricature. He used it brilliantly in the 45 election thatcher then seized it in 79 and kept it as her great sort of overriding theme freedom from the state freedom from these socialist labor people um anyway uh, and biden's doing it uh keir starmer take note Okay, David Bartlett wonders why there wasn't more attention paid to the Extinction Rebellion uh, last weekend. Um, Do you have any thoughts about why these large and peaceful protests get so little traction um, and what uh, the environmental movement can do to change this? I'll be interested to hear a podcast about the politics of environmentalism in the UK. And given the crisis that a lot of us believe will soon be upon us, there should be, where should energy be focused to bring the issue into the mainstream agenda? Well, David, I think it is in the mainstream agenda, hugely, on one level. Remember, Labour, so, so cautious about spending, pledged to borrow £28 billion uh, a year on it. Uh, and there are other things. Um, but I, the, the media coverage, I, I i don't quite know why, actually, David. Um, and here's a of course, an ironic twist because there wasn't much media coverage. I hadn't been following i I do know people who were on on some of the um uh, protests in london um but I don't know what does everyone else think Let's have a wider discussion about this um I know also from um uh, we did a, a session on this in uh, Edinburgh, having spoken to some of the cooperative in Edinburgh at the festival last summer say steve you've got to do more on climate change i you know it was anyway, and then I did uh but you're reminding me again uh so thank you very much david uh finally from buxton Phil um or maybe not quite finally let's see um but Phil says, I've been listening avidly on Patreon. Well, hopefully, Phil, see you at this uh, special live thing we're doing on Patreon. Uh- I've been learning first time with my mum over the last 12 months uh, through lived experience of the strain beyond breaking point of the NHS and the starved social care system, which is bizarrely disconnected from the former. Doctors with no say in what happens after discharge, a cycle of readmittance as a result. If there was need of some reform, in inverted commas, I fixing as a more precise term. Uh, which we like in our rock and roll politics collective, it's this. Yeah, I completely agree, Buxton, Phil. And do come down to a live show again and and raise it because, well, we've talked about it earlier today with the social care stuff. And during the pandemic, everyone said, oh, one of the lessons we've got to learn is more joined up thinking with the NHS and social care. What happens? Nothing. Um, And the money isn't raised, social care levy dropped. The usual paralysis uh in dysfunctional britain uh nigel wilcott actually we're going to do big stuff about the economy and how you get the growth in the economy we had a brilliant email last week about this or earlier this week um nigel Wilcott. Uh, Koch, who's an economist, says, how does Labour explain that boosting immigration will be crucial for growth? Sure, we need productivity too, but we simply will not grow unless we solve shortage of workers and recognise that without intervention, the ageing population will only make matters worse. Um, uh, And it's from Nigel, mulling over the conundrum whilst wandering the hills of the Scottish Borders. Well, I'll tell you, Nigel, that conundrum will keep you going for the entire walk in the Scottish Borders. I bet it's beautiful up there, um, and a good thing to be reflecting on in the uh, beauty because it is. A, it's a thorny theme. Uh, the CBI, when it was when it existed before it imploded, um, or was it the CBI? No, it was the bank. The director, the head of the Bank of England, said the theme uh that is raised more than any other by business leaders to him is labor shortages and we all know it in every area of our life from the nhs to going to a restaurant to everything um see signs up please you know vacancies vacancies um and yet the politics makes it hard, though, in my view, not impossible to address. But, Nigel, can we do that on another occasion? Uh, Because we've been going quite some time uh, today. But thank you for... Enjoy the rest of the walk, if you're still walking. I hope you're listening to this in the Scottish borders. Beautiful sunshine compared to the chill of London still as I speak anyway look thank you so much uh, for brilliant points a uh, bit of an extended uh question time this time uh but uh, we've got so much to make sense of haven't we in our times together so let's get together again very soon to make sense of more time uh, there'll be more interviews to come as well and in the meantime have a great time thanks so much bye